0: Turn, if you would, to Psalm 15, 15, 1-5. My son-in-law and I got into a uh, duel yesterday with dad jokes. I would tell you my favorite one, but I can't afford to have it on the recording. Sorry. A psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The question that the psalmist raises is who gets to spend time with God? Who gets to dwell in his tent? Who gets to sit on his mountain, Zion? That is the question that I would contend forms the basis of every religion that ever existed. How can we be right with God? How can we re-enter the presence of God? Remember, Adam and Eve lived in the garden. They walked with God. They talked with God. They communed with God. And then the fall. And since then, every religion has tried to figure out how do we get back to being right with God? And the psalmist is going to tell us exactly how to do it. Here are the things that you have to do in order to be right with God. There's a list here. So we're going to go through this list one item at a time. Okay? That's our plan for the day. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Number one, he who walks blamelessly. What does it mean to walk blamelessly? I am walking through life, and I encounter people, and those people can either say, you've done me wrong, or they recognize that I have not done anything worthy of blame. I didn't defraud them. I didn't take their stuff. I didn't lie about them. I am blameless. Question. Let's have a show of hands. No, let's not have a show of hands. (laughs) How many of you would consider yourself blameless? Remember, when we're talking in the New Testament um, about the qualifications for an elder and a deacon, it says above reproach, which is close to the same thing. What does it mean in human terms to be blameless? It means, what is the next phrase? He does what is right. So, When I get into a situation, and I do some activity, I am doing the activity that is right. Now the problem with that is who gets to decide what right is? I mean, if I'm gonna do what is right, someone somewhere has to tell me this is right and that is wrong. And when I do what is right, I am blameless. There is no one who can stand there and say, you done me wrong. Now, I might add that there's a little bit of leeway in this. You may question that, but we'll talk about that. If I get angry at someone without cause, but then I immediately recognize that I've done so and I apologize for it, And I am actually sincere in my apology, they will go, okay, that's right. You're okay. You got angry, but you apologized, you repented, you are, in my eyes, blameless. Because we carry with it that idea of repentance that idea that I've done you wrong, but I made amends. I did what was right to make the situation okay. A month or so ago, a young kid in the neighborhood backed into our mailbox. Okay, Now, we live on a street that has no curbs, no gutters, no nothing, and this is a frequent occurrence, Uh, like the fifth time in the last 20 years that I've replaced my mailbox. But you know what? He left a note with his phone number. I called, and he came right over, and he said, I did it. What do I owe you for the next one? And then his mother came over to make sure he had done it, taken care of it. And then the friend of the person came over to make sure it was okay. And then the father of the friend came over to make sure that we... You know what? It was cool. In my eyes, the kid was blameless because he did what he ought to have done in the situation before him. But back to the other question. Who gets to decide what right is? If I'm going to be doing what is right so that I can be blameless, it would imply that, well, obviously, whew, I get to choose what right is, right? Well, that happens to be a, ver- a, a frequent standard that we use today. You know, I am true to myself, I follow my passion, and I do what I think is right. And in the Bible, it actually talks about that. What it says is when things are really bad, the description that it uses is that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Biblically, there is only one standard of right, and that is God. God tells us, do this, don't do that. Do this, good things. Do this, bad things. The scripture tells us there are right things and there are wrong things. So when we do what is right, we are blameless, but we are blameless before God. Who is it, who is it They can enter the presence of God, the person who does what is right, therefore they are blameless before God. Now that's the interesting thing we see today, because in the eyes of a lot of people in our present society, to do that which is right in the eyes of God is to do that which is wrong in the eyes of the community. And we see this in the New Testament when the apostles are arrested for preaching and violating the laws of the community. And what do they say? We have to follow God, not man. So the observation as we begin the list is those who can enter the presence of God, those who can fellowship with him are those who do what is right in the eyes of God, and thus are blameless in the eyes of God. You okay so far? Let's keep going. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Speaks truth in his heart. Hmm. Let's tear that apart. Let's take the first two words. Speaks truth. This is real hard. What does it mean to speak the truth? Come on. Somebody tell me. God's word is truth. No guile. Guile Guile means, well, I'm, I'm trying to kind of sort of tell you the sort of truth. But it's kind of the sort of truth that helps me kind of do what I kind of want to do which may not exactly be the truth, but it's close to the truth. That's guile. What does it mean to speak the truth? It means that you speak that which you understand to be true. Let's just start there, okay? I'm going to let you off the hook. Let's just start with speaking what you really think from your heart is the truth. Shall we have another show of hands? Shall we discuss the lack of truth in a lot of things that go on in our life around us today? I mean, one of my favorite examples, and it's an exceptionally old example. Back when I was in college, I would call the youth choir on Saturday to remind them that we sing on Sunday. We did this every week. And every week, I had a young lady said, I will be there tomorrow. And every week, she did not show up on Sunday. And finally, I said, why? And she said, oh, I just tell you that to get you off the phone. Now, that, that was honest, okay? It's a truthful statement. It's just everything leading up to that wasn't true. Our words are important. You can go to the book of Proverbs and read proverb after proverb discussing the importance of the words that come out of our mouth. It is important that we communicate truth. Let's start at the top, the word of God. It is important that we communicate the world according to God's truth. Now, having left that, we do acknowledge the fact that I can sometimes tell you something that I really do think is the truth and ends up being incorrect. What do I do then? I go back and say, I thought, but I was wrong. Please forgive me. Here's the truth. When we do not speak truth, we are doing so for a reason. We are doing so to cover up some wrongdoing that we've been caught in. We're doing it to try to make ourselves look better. I am going to tell you all the wonderful things that I do, some of which happen to be true, so that you will think more highly of me. Who knows? It may even help me get elected to office. Where are you going, Bill? Oh. Be real nice to Bill, he is our, one of our state representatives. <laughs> we use our tongues to try to confuse people so that they will think differently and usually so that they will think more highly of us. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. God knows when you're lying. I mean, okay? you. you I may not know. In fact, I've told people, I'm really not very good at telling when somebody's lying to me. I'll just fess up, okay? I've mentioned in here before that we have done marriage mentoring, okay, with young couples in our church getting married. And I grilled a young lady for three hours one night because somebody was lying to me. Somebody was lying to me but I have no idea who. I don't. You can fool me. You can't fool God. So if you want to fellowship at my house and you're actually a mass murderer, you could probably weasel your way into my house and be my friend until I figure out you're a mass murderer. Now, if you're a mass murderer and you're repentant, okay, let's talk about that. But if you're going to dwell in God's tent, if you're going to have fellowship with him, notice the phrase, from the heart, in the heart, telling the truth, speaking the truth. He knows when you're lying. You are not pulling the wool over his head. How many times have you or I or you've heard somebody say a prayer, and you go, that sounds a little fishy, or that at least sounds like they're trying to make themselves better than the... Forget it! God knows! All you're doing when you pray to God is you're acknowledging what He already knows. So if you're going to dwell with God, you might as well speak the truth, because He knows when you're not. So, here we are. We're walking blamelessly. We're doing what is right. And we're speaking the truth in our hearts. We've made it through one verse of it. (laughs) Who does not slander with his tongue. What is slander? Hmm? Pardon? Gossip? Okay. But I was. What truth? Which truth? Oh, yeah. I mean, his observation is when we are speaking the truth, we do have a tendency to embellish the truth, right? So it's like, here's the truth, and it's not that attractive, but it is the truth. But, you know, I'm going to put a wrapper around it, so that you will be more convinced that it is the truth, okay? And that embellishment becomes, well, it has the potential of becoming a lie, and that's a problem. There was a speaker that I listened to for years, and when he was talking about something, he'd have you know, a couple of really good points, but he wanted 10 points, and he had a couple of really good ones. So he added a few that were, oh, oh, whatever. So we are to speak the truth. Now, let's make sure we understand we are to speak the truth in love. You know, you don't really have to say everything of what you're thinking. In fact, it would probably be best if you didn't speak everything. That you were thinking. We discuss small children who have no filter on their lips. They just say it. So we do have to add the love part to it, but we have to remember not to <sighs> embellish the truth. We need to not hide the truth in a mass of other stuff just to make us or our side of the argument look better. So, moving on from there, we move on to a very similar thing, which is slander. Slander is when I start saying something bad about you that may or may not, probably won't, isn't, but might be not true. Did you hear what he did over there? Let me tell you about it. Just an aside, just an aside, don't take your buddies away over on the side and say, let's pray about Kyle, and while we're praying about Kyle, let me tell you the dirt I've heard on him. (laughs) Oh, you would have never do that in your life, would you? Our prayer sessions become, what was your word? Gossip sessions. We would never, ever do that. There's a biblical answer to that, and that is, if you have ought against your brother, go to your brother. I was talking to one of my son-in-laws, not the one that I was doing dad jokes with, another son-in-law, and his church, they have a policy. You come to someone and say, did you hear what? And you go, did you talk to them about it? Well, no. You have 24 hours to do it, or I'm going to go talk to them. End of story. And as he points out, people stop coming to you to tell you things about people. (laughs) Slander is to cut someone down, usually for our benefit or just because it makes us feel good to cut somebody down. Slander with your tongue. I am saying things whose sole purpose is to make that person look bad in your eyes. So I am telling you, let me tell you the straight, no, don't do it. If you have a problem with a brother or sister in Christ, you are to go talk to them. End of story. Does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. (sighs) What would it mean to do evil to your neighbor? Well, if we're doing what is right, then obviously we're not doing that which is evil. But we can just sit there and do nothing And evil will happen, but you know what? It's not my fault. You go back, well, we are in the Old Testament, and you go back to all these strange laws, you know, if your neighbor's cow wanders into your yard, you don't shoot it and barbecue it. You just don't do it. You take the neighbor's cow and you walk it back to the neighbor. To do otherwise is to do evil to your neighbor, Now, obvious question, because it was asked of Jesus. But who is my neighbor? And you remember the story that Jesus gave as the answer to that question? He gave the story of the Good Samaritan. The guy's walking along. He gets beat up by robbers. The priest comes along. The Levite comes along. And they walk to the other side. Why did they walk to the other side? They didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to get involved, probably there was some religious purity issues going here, and they didn't want to touch blood, and the guy was probably going to die anyway. So the Samaritan shows up, who is, was the archenemy of the Jewish people, and he says, hey dude, what can I do to help you? binds up his wounds, puts him on his donkey, takes him to the local inn, buys the medicine for him, tells the innkeeper to take care of him, and says, if it costs more, I'll be back next week and I'll pay the bill. That was Jesus' answer regarding who was his neighbor. We know, we know what the word neighbor means. I've got a guy living next door to me That would be my brother-in-law. I've got a guy on this side. Okay? Great guy. If you ever need to borrow a tool, he's got two of them, whatever it is. I've also got a neighbor behind me. That would be my mother. Okay. I'll put my circle down, and I'll be nice to these people. But we're also told to take care of our Christian brothers and sisters. Oh shoot, that means if the Christian brother or sister calls you at midnight and says their car died in Timbuktu, as you're walking out the door with your keys in your hand, you're asking, give me the address because I'll be there. Why? because that's what we're called to do. What Jesus is telling us in the story of the Good Samaritan is that we are to broaden, not shrink, our definition of who our neighbor is. At this point, I don't want to get into a discussion of whether the guy that belongs to ISIS over there in the Middle East is your neighbor. Odds are you're not going to run into them tomorrow. But the odds are you are gonna run into people who live in your neighborhood, fellow believers, just people who need some help, and guess what? That's the doing good. The flip side of that is you don't do them evil. Now, that seems like a strange phrase to us. I don't know about you, I rarely wake up and go, okay, today, I'm gonna do evil to somebody. (laughs) I'm gonna do it today. (sighs) But then we get into a situation where I have the ability to take advantage of, say, a poor person, or I have the the ability to take some legal action that is probably kind of almost right, but it's kind of on the edge, but you know, the court will never figure it out. So I do it. And in my heart, I know I shouldn't. And in my heart, I know it is evil. And he's telling us, if you want to be with God, don't do that. Don't do evil to your neighbor. Do not slander. Do not evil. Don't don't do evil. And do not take up a reproach against his friend. What does it mean to take up a reproach? You know what? What? You did me wrong, and I'm going to hold it against you until the day both of us die. I am going to hold this grudge no matter what happens. This is actually really sad, and I am not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have friends that somewhere along the lines, a reproach, A wrong was done. No repentance was given. And, 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 and it's that way today. We have family members. We have friends. We have acquaintances. And we have developed a reproach. And we don't deal with it. Once again, what does the scripture say? Go. Before the sun goes down, go and figure out what's wrong. And try to make amends. If you show up at the church, and you're going to put your offering in the plate. We don't do that today, right? You're going to give your sacrifice. And you remember, oh, shoot, I really ticked off my brother. Leave your money. I think it's interesting. You leave your money, because you may not come back if you don't. Leave your money, and go make it right and then come back and present your sacrifice. Do what it takes to make it right. Does not take up approach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Did that just say that I'm supposed to despise certain people? What does it mean? In whose eyes a vile person is despised. Does that mean I'm supposed to hate somebody? No. Let's think about it this way. I need role models. I am going to emulate somebody. I am going to look at somebody and say, I want to be like them. Or, conversely, I don't want to be like them. Now, when I make that decision, who am I choosing to be in which category? And this verse is telling us, I am to look at the person who fears the Lord and honor them. They're the ones I'm supposed to emulate. And at the same time, I acknowledge the fact that there are people who do wicked things, and guess what? I am not to emulate them. Now, we are not going to name names. I've told you in here before, a distant relative of mine, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, made a a sermon one time, the 10 worst sinners in Fort Worth, names given. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. But when we look at, say, the celebrities in our society and we hold them up to some, any level of esteem, why are we doing that? Why are we holding this group up for esteem and we're not actually that interested in anybody that fears the Lord? It sounds pretty boring, right? because our value system is messed up. Our value system is connected to the influence in our lives and that influence in our lives is generally generated by the media. So when I wake up in the morning, and I know we're all old and mature and we're not gonna emulate anybody, right? Ha. We're always wanting to be like somebody. And it's interesting because Paul later says, you should be like me. That's a pretty arrogant thing of him to say. No, he was seeking after Christ, and he was looking at the young Christians and saying, come on, follow me. That's what he was saying. But we enjoy those who in our society have celebrity status And we have a tendency to not look down on, but not care so much about those who do, in fact, fear the Lord. It is a problem with our value system. So those who are going to fellowship and sit with God are going to value people not according to who sold the most records or who runs the fastest in a particular sporting event or who does those things, but based on the standard that God has set for us. Namely, honoring those who fear God, who treat God, who live their lives with awe and reverence toward God. That's the person Who is ready to sit with God. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You know, I know I promised you I would do something. But you know, situation has changed. In fact, I have to wash my hair tonight, so I can't help you. Sorry. That is a joke, by the way. But isn't that the way we operate often? I promise you I'm going to help you with something until it becomes difficult or I get a better offer. I've told you in here before, and I've actually read articles since then, about how cell phones have allowed us to change our plans all the time. I tell you I'm coming to your house. But you know what? Since I have this thing that allows me to communicate with everybody at any time and I get a better offer, guess what? I got a better offer. Sorry. This is the person who says they're going to do something, and even when they find out it's going to hurt, they continue to do it. I had a friend who was in the computer business, and he did a lot of work with the Mormons in Utah, and he said it was fabulous. Why? If they told you they were going to do something, they were going to do it. They were. He said, we'd work out the contract stuff in due time. But if they said they were going to do something, they did it. Guess what? That is how we are supposed to live our lives. But yeah, but it hurts. There's a cost associated with it. The person who swears, who says they're going to do something, and keeps doing it, even when it hurts. They do not change. Who does not put out his money at interest. Can we just skip that one? Some translations use the word usury. Usury would be an amount of interest that is uh, excessive to the point of being detrimental to the other person. Most modern theologians would say that's what this passage means. So I lend money to someone and the going rate of loaning money is a couple of percent. It's pretty lousy today, right? And I get back a couple of percent. But I know you're in desperate need. I know that you have a horrible need in your life, and I can use this as an opportunity to really milk you for everything. And so instead of a percent or two, I want 30% from you, and I'm a credit card company. I mean, no, excuse me, I didn't say that. Because I can, I do, and I take advantage of those in need who are poor, who... And God says, don't do that. Now, I might add, just for discussion purposes, a discussion that we're not going to have, for much of church history, they did believe that loaning money at interest was wrong. You know? Some poor member of this church comes to you and they have a true need, a true, honest-to-goodness, Need and you say, okay, here's a hundred bucks in two weeks, pay me back 200 bucks. No, you have the resources, they have the need, God gave you the resources, and God gave them the need. Guess what? Oh, you don't like that answer, right? Just give it to them, just do it. I do not think this passage is talking about the business of finance, okay? There is things that we do. We're talking here about somebody's in need, and you're taking advantage of that. And he's saying, don't do it. Just don't. And does not take a bribe against the innocent. What is a bribe? I slip you 100 bucks I slip 100 bucks to the judge and the judge rules in my favor whether I'm right or wrong irrelevant but my money allows me to do things that are unjust to those who are innocent and we get to the end of it he who does these things shall never be moved okay in your mind we're going to have a test Do not raise your hands. Just check off true, false, in your mind, (sighs) blameless, right, speaks the truth, does not slander. Uh, What are the others? Uh, Does no evil, Uh, uh, does not take up a reproach, despises the vile person, honors those who fear God. Does not loan money with interest. Does what he says he's going to do, and he doesn't take a bribe. Okay, how many of you passed the test? I have a Please. About oh no. Go ahead. Well, is it wrong to collect interest? What do you think? No. But it just says don't do it. not letting you off the hook this easy. (laughs) Many translations, as I said, will use the word usury in this passage, which is excessive interest just because you can get away with it. And my understanding is the Bible says that's wrong. Having said that, as I pointed out, there are those in the church History, who have said loaning money at interest is wrong. Now, I believe that it is talking about usury, and the fact that I give money to the bank and the, I, I put my deposit in the bank and the bank gets, gives me interest for it, not much, but they give me interest for it, uh, is okay because they're using the money, it's driving. Okay, no one is being taken advantage of. I think this passage is dealing with people being taken advantage of because they are in need, they are hurting, and I go, sure, I will loan you a hundred bucks, and as I just said, if you'll give me two hundred bucks back next week. That's usury, and that is not loving your neighbor. So I, I wanted to leave it a little bit vague so that you might actually think more often about doing good without expecting a return. Now, if I'm doing business interest, business endeavors, yes, I'm doing business because I expect a return. That's to be expected even within biblical economics. But you don't ever take advantage of the poor just because you can. Okay. It's a great subject to not get involved in. (sighs) So, how many of you passed the test? And I might add, this is not a test where a 90 is a passing grade. This is a test where a 100 is a passing grade. There is no curve. There is a problem, and the problem is sin. Flip back very quickly, you don't even have to flip in my Bible, to chapter Psalm 14. A lot of this is going to sound familiar because it's quoted in Romans chapter 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They are abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, at that point, I may think, okay, he's talking about the fool. That's great. I'm off the hook. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, that would be me and you, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Question, how many of you pass the test in Romans chapter 15? None. If you think you passed it, you're lying and you failed it. (laughs) Just to let you know. Or, when we were talking about what is right, you created a list in order to ensure that you were right and passed the test. What does it say? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge, all the... uh, have no knowledge all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generations of the righteous. The reason Paul quotes this passage in Romans chapter 3 is to remind us that we are all sinners. Sinners. Let me tell you the gospel message. Adam and Eve walked with God, and then Adam and Eve fell. All religion, all sex, all philosophies have been an attempt to get back to being right with God. And God just comes out and tells you, you want to be right with God? Then walk blamelessly and do what is right in my eyes. Yet at the same time, we acknowledge In Psalm 14, God knows none of us are blameless. He knows that we are all corrupt. He knows that we don't really seek after the things of God. Wait a minute. Didn't you just say that all religions are an attempt to get back to God? Yes, they are. And they're all wrong. What we want are the things of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, but we don't want God. Because we are corrupt. So how in the world can we become Psalm 15 people? And guess what? We're supposed to be Psalm 15 people. How can we do that? And that's what the book of Romans tells us. There is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. There is a righteousness that is given to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a description of the life of Jesus Christ. He who walks blamely and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil in his neighbor. You get the picture, right? Jesus Christ fulfilled Psalm 15 to the letter. And then he died such that we could receive his righteousness and instead of being Psalm 14 people, we can become Psalm 15 people. You see there's a false way of looking at, at this and I mention this all the time because I know you believe it and it's wrong. What we think is that God in his mercy just said, never mind, I don't see your sin. I don't care if you're sinning. I just love you so much. Come on in. No. That sin had to be dealt with. That sin had to be paid for. That sin had to be taken care of by Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel. And then, and then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can begin to be blameless and do what is right. And some days I don't. I repent, I confess, I turn back to God, I say I got any more help. But I can do what God has called me to do. I can speak the truth. I can not slander. I can do these things because the Holy Spirit is working in me. So here's the problem. It's not a problem. It's just what we happen to do. I either think that I've done 15 on my own and I ignore 14 or 14 so depresses me I just give up or I accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and think that Psalm 15 doesn't apply anymore. No. Psalm 15 is the description of who is going to fellowship with God. And Jesus Christ fulfilled Psalm 15, and he did it so that you and I could do that also. And that's the wonder of the gospel. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. I pray, Lord, that we would work at being blameless before you, that we would do that which is right. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.